I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, the House of Representatives introduced an article of impeachment against President Trump after the storming of the Capitol last week by a pro-Trump mob. On today's episode, we will discuss the constitutional issues raised by the prospect of another impeachment, as well as recent events. We'll also take a broader look at presidential power, past, present, and future. I am honored to be joined by two of America's leading experts on presidential power and the Constitution. Michael McConnell is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He is the author of the new book, The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. Michael, it is an honor to have you back on the show. Thank you. Christina Rodriguez is the Leighton Homer Serbeck Professor of Law at Yale Law School. She is the author with Adam Cox of The President and Immigration Law, which we had a great discussion of in a town hall program uh, last fall. Christina, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Michael, you have just completed a book called The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. Is there any historical precedent for last week's events? And what do you make of the argument that the storming of the Capitol by a violent mob represents the founders' nightmare? Well, there certainly is no uh, precedent for a president egging on a mob to attack the Capitol. Uh, This isn't the first time the Capitol was uh, attacked by a mob. That happened uh, before the Constitution Uh, was ratified by a mob of unpaid soldiers in Philadelphia who mobbed uh, Congress. And actually, Congress ran to Princeton and then to Camden and then to Annapolis. And this is one of the main reasons they created a federal city, Washington, D.C., which would not be under the control of a state in order to protect uh, themselves. They did anticipate that a president might uh, use abuse powers in order to stay in office. Uh, The principal mechanism they thought such a president would use would be his control over the military. They were thinking of things like uh, Julius Caesar, you know, who used his personal popularity with the army to displace constitutional uh, government. I like to say our military has performed admirably. I think one huge success of the American Republic is to create a non civilian, non-political army that we do not have to fear, uh, even though, you know, former General Flynn issued, I thought, the most horrifying statement of the entire uh, last several uh, weeks when he urged uh, President Trump to order martial law and have the army take over the voting machines and rerun the elections in the states where Trump lost uh, by a, a close margin. Uh, but the military were having none of it. And so in a sense, this is uh, unprecedented. Christina, the same question to you. Is there any precedent for last week's events and in some sense, do they represent one of the framers' nightmares? We've certainly had 
hotly contested elections that have provoked violence. But as Michael said, there's no precedent for a president inciting an attack on Congress. During the last few days, and and really the last couple of months, I've been thinking a lot about the way I, I, I thought about the counting of the votes in the 2000 election. And I remember when Al Gore accepted the results when he had to uh, declare that his opponent was going to be the new president and gave a speech where he uh, respected what the Supreme Court had decided in Bush v. Gore. Lots of people congratulating him for uh, acceding to the peaceful transition of power and being willing to accept a loss. And, and I remember thinking at the time, well, that's not really worthy of congratulation. That is a baseline for our system of government. Of course, uh, everyone would fall in line behind that that principle. And I still don't think it's worthy of congratulation, but I much less likely, as most of us are now, to take that for granted and to see more clearly how the character of the individual uh, does matter greatly to the way that the processes play out. Uh, And so this is a really stark contrast to that election that was extremely contested and where there were actual legal claims uh, that could have been raised that seemed far more plausible than the ones that were thrown out here, but where there was no intimation of of violence or second-guessing the certifications once everything had been said and done through legal processes. Michael, this week the House introduced articles of impeachment against the President of the United States for incitement of insurrection. Uh, you've just studied the history of impeachment in your new book, The President Who Would Be King. Before turning to the factual question of whether you think the president's conduct meets the standard of incitement for insurrection, tell us, is the charge of incitement of insurrection the kind that the framers were concerned about or would have considered impeachable? And then also address some of the technical questions about whether the framers contemplated a trial of a president after he left office. Well, I don't think that the way that the House is drafting the articles of impeachment is is very wise or careful or lawyerly. This is not the way they should be written. Um, But I don't have any doubt uh, that the conduct underlying it is an impeachable offense. That um, uh, There is a misunderstanding that high crimes and misdemeanors refers to things that are in the United States Criminal Code. And there is some argument for that, and there have been the people have been arguing that, by the way, in contested impeachments way back uh, to the uh, uh, early 1800s. Uh, so it's it's not a new argument, but I think it is not true that I, I think the framers deliberately adopted language from British precedent that was not tied to uh, what could be uh, actually a criminal conviction uh, in court. The charges against Warren Hastings uh, that were going on at the time of the foundation of the Constitution uh, were not primarily uh, criminal uh, in nature. Uh, The idea was to allow impeachment for very serious, grave uh, misconduct, not for policy differences, not for partisan differences, not for mismanagement but for very serious, grave uh, misconduct. And it's hard to deny that egging on a mob uh, to take over the Capitol and prevent the uh, proper recognition of properly cast votes would fall into that category. Christina, your thoughts about whether or not incitement to insurrection 
if it were proven, and we'll turn to that question in a moment, uh, constitutes an impeachable high crime and misdemeanor, as well as any thoughts about those technical questions about issues raised by a trial after the president leaves office? So I don't think there's any question that if it were proven that actual engagement in insurrection, including by deliberate incitement of a mob to attempt to undo the counting of votes and to attack the coordinate branch of government would be a grounds for impeachment. But I also think a relevant question for Congress is whether the president's behavior just short of that, absent proof that that actually occurred under whatever legal standard you're going to apply, is grounds for impeachment. And and I would contend, following from the impeachment we just went through, that it that it most certainly is because it demonstrates uh, contempt for the the system of government as a whole and is part of a larger effort to undermine the very integrity of our electoral system and the ability to hold the the president accountable in every way. It's an attempt to evade that altogether. Whether or not it's permissible to try him after he's left office, I think is, is a subject of debate on which there is conflicting evidence. And it's obviously something that for which there's no clear precedent when it comes to a, a, an impeachment of this sort. The reason for doing it is clearly because conviction would mean that he would no longer be eligible for office. And, and I do think many people across the political spectrum now see that that is something of an imperative uh, for a person who's willing to do all of the many things that this president has done culminating in what happened last week to possibly be voted into office again is a grave threat, uh, a real grave threat to to our system and, and to our well-being as a country. Uh, whether or not that would hold after a conviction and whether or not a conviction is actually conceivable is an entirely different question. The possibility that a conviction won't be achievable is not a reason not to proceed with impeachment uh, because the impeachment itself puts on the historical record that what has happened here is extraordinary and something that that ought to be condemned by the members of Congress, if not in self-defense and in defense of the constitutional system. Michael, now let's turn to the question of whether or not the president committed incitement to insurrection, both under a constitutional standard and under the legal standard, which, as the Brandenburg case reminds us, requires that speech be intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. The House's articles of impeachment quote the president's statement in his speech on the ellipse, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, and say thus incited by President Trump, members of the crowd he addressed, mop the Capitol. So two questions for you. First, for a senator ruling on the incitement charge, do you think the incitement standard is met? And then if the president were to be charged in a criminal court with incitement, would his conduct meet the Brandenburg standard? Well, I think the criminal case is difficult. Um, I think in if this if you were actually tried in a criminal case with incitement, that uh, you'd parse every word that he said and... It's a, and Brandenburg sets a very high standard. I just don't think that has anything to do with whether he has done something that is impeachable. I think it was foolish for the uh, House members who drew up this article, these articles of impeachment, to word them in ways that get us talking about Brandenburg because, you know, that's not what impeachment is about. 
And I think they could have worded it in ways which were unmistakably true as a factual matter and unmistakably impeachable as a constitutional matter. I'm moved to ask, how would you have worded it if you were trying to achieve that goal? Well, I think there were three basic things that President Trump has done that are serious misuses of his presidential position. The one was to try to frustrate the proper registration and recognition of the electoral results. And here I do not refer to his challenging them in court. He had a right to do them. I think he was wrong on the merits, but lots of people in court are wrong on the merits, usually half of them uh, in every case. But once decisions had been made to try to pressure election officials like the Secretary of State of Georgia or the legislators in Wisconsin to uh, disregard the vote after the proper, after all the channels for proper challenge were were completed uh, was wrong. And then secondly, to egg on a crowd, whether it's technically incitement or not, he encouraged the crowd to march on the Capitol under circumstances where it was reasonably foreseeable uh, that violence was going to break out. Uh, And that may not be technically incitement, but it is still deeply wrong for the president to do that. And third, he has a take care clause responsibility to protect the law. For him to sit back for several hours when this is taking place and not even make a clear call for his supporters to back down. When his own supporters are calling to hang Mike Pence, right, and members of Congress are phoning in to his aides saying that they are in fear for their lives, and he doesn't even use his influence with the crowd to get them to back down is uh, uh, is just uh, an unbelievable dereliction. Christina, same three questions to you. Uh, first, did the president's conduct meet the constitutional standards for insurrection? Second, would it be incitement in a criminal trial? And then if you were drafting the articles of impeachment, how would you draft them differently? So I think with respect to the first two questions, I quite agree with Michael, that the the standards are high and whether the president had the appropriate mens rea or the approach, the, the standards required to show insurrection is difficult to say and probably would be difficult uh, to win a prosecution on those grounds. But that is beside the point to your third question, which is really what we should be debating. Uh, and I, I doubt very much, though, it, we don't know for certain that criminal prosecutors will pursue the the president once he's out of office for his conduct. Um, on the question of impeachment, I think one of the things that we can see from what Michael just said about the president standing by and not trying to stop his reporters is a feature of his character that the last impeachment also brought to light, which is that his concern is for himself and his interests alone. Uh, he is not concerned for the interests of the country and has no conception, I, I don't think, of, of the public good. That is not a description of a ground for impeachment, but it is a way of understanding all of his behavior and why, if there is behavior that rises to the level of an impeachable 
offense, it is in the interest of, of the nation to, to get rid of him or, or to believe that he will only persist in doing those things that he can get away with because he cares only about his self-interest. And, uh, you know, as we both said, his uh, willingness to lean on government officials to try to change the outcome of an election, plus his exhortation of his supporters to attack Congress, whether that rises to the level of incitement or not, both of those reflect uh, contempt from this, for the system and an, a willingness and an effort to undo the system of elections that power our, our constitution and make sure that we continue to have a democracy. And, and on those grounds, I think he can be removed from office. Much of what preceded things like the phone call with um, the Secretary of State of Georgia are behaviors or actions that we can debate as violations of norms. I think many of the cases that were filed, if not the vast majority of the cases that were filed, uh, were frivolous uh, and reflect uh, egregious infringements of norms of accepting uh, defeat in a presidential election, particularly as the losses build and the willingness to bring cases to court where there is not a shred of evidence and only just uh, Twitter conspiracy theories or belief that the election must have been rigged uh, demonstrates a form of, of corruption that's dangerous, but not the sort of behavior that rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, certainly behavior that should be discouraged and criticized. And I wouldn't frame it in the way that Michael has as the, you know, the right of the candidate, especially where there is nothing to the, the dozens of suits that were filed and that becomes clear over time. Um, but it's really the later events, which uh, you and Michael have highlighted, that justify what the House is doing, even if they're not articulating the grounds in as legally sound a way. I, I think they're trying to do it quickly. Um, you know, They don't have weeks to come up with articles of impeachment and are trying to make a larger statement about the, the threat that the president made against uh, the coordinate branch and against their, their very legitimacy. And, and that's why they look the way they do. The articles of impeachment also cite section three of the 14th amendment, which says that no person shall hold any office, civil or military under the United States, who having previously taken an oath to support the constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Some members of Congress are arguing that whether or not impeachment succeeds, Section 3 should be invoked to deny the president the right to hold office. Michael, tell us about the history of Section 3. What was it attempting to achieve? And if it were invoked today, how would it work? Some have said that one house could pass a resolution, others that both, and other that the president would have to sign a law passed by Congress and others that the courts would simply interpret the disqualification on their own. Uh, what's your view? So, Jeff, I don't know, and I don't actually think anybody else knows either. Uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has a very specific history and context. It's, it's right after the Civil War. It's referring uh, to the uh, people who were in open rebellion, uh, uh, you know, they called themselves rebels. It was a, it was a civil war against the United States. It has never been uh, invoked since then. The amendment itself does not say 
who would declare that people were uh, in insurrection because there wasn't any doubt. Everybody knew who they were talking about. Uh, and so is this people who are convicted in court of the crime of insurrection? That seems the most plausible. Uh, the idea that Congress, by some kind of you know majority vote, has the right to declare that someone's an insurrection and therefore can never hold office strikes me as committing somewhat the same uh, error that those who thought that, you know, Vice President Pence could just dispense with the electoral vote was. It's it's concentrating too much power in political figures uh, to undo elections. You know, if, if a mere majority of houses of Congress can decide that, you know, folks whom the people of the United States elect to office aren't going to uh, hold office, that seems rather extreme. There's elsewhere in the Constitution, it requires a two-thirds vote uh, to expel um, a member of Congress from misconduct. And uh, so to, to read this sort of extreme procedure into a provision of the Constitution that's never been used, never been applied, you know, has no precedence to support it seems uh, to me to be unsupportable when when other perfectly straightforward constitutional means are available. Christina, your thoughts about the history and purpose of Section 3, how it would apply in practice, who would trigger it, and do you share Michael's concerns about congressional triggering or not? I definitely share Michael's skepticism. I think it's a creative argument. And the historical analogy uh, is both immediately clear and intriguing, but also demonstrates why this is a route down which we are unlikely uh, to go because the provision was there for a very particular historical reason in response, as, as Michael says, to open rebellion, secession, war, uh, and uh, declarations of loyalty to seceding power. We don't have anything even coming close to resembling that in these circumstances. And what I would focus on is the, the difficulty of having anything approaching an objective determination that this individual or any other individual was an insurrection against the United States. I don't know, absent the kinds of historical circumstances that existed after the Civil War, that you would be able to come to a conclusion about that. And I'm deeply skeptical the courts would actually get themselves involved in this and decide, you know, especially absent a criminal prosecution, but decide themselves that uh, someone like President Trump had committed the offenses that make him ineligible for office under this amendment that was clearly intended to address a completely different historical circumstance and then preclude that person from running for office. That seems dangerously close to the sort of political question that courts aren't going to want to resolve. And then that leaves you with the congressional solution. And again, especially in our, our polarized times, the notion that you would have a majority of Congress disqualifying someone uh, out of a belief that they don't believe in the country or don't would be anathema to the system is just a recipe for uh, back and forth among hyper-partisan actors who would believe the same thing about someone who hadn't done nearly the same as President Trump, but who conspiracy channels suggest are you know terrorist threats to our nation. So I, I think that it's um, an interesting debate to be having, but I, I don't think it will result in anything. The impeachment and removal is the path, the clear path to, to addressing circumstances like this. 
Michael, tell us about the constitutional role of the vice president in counting electoral votes. Before January 6th, the vice president issued a letter concluding that he had only a ministerial role to play and the president's efforts to get him to throw out the results of the election were not consistent with the text of the Constitution of the 12th Amendment. Uh, Do you agree or disagree? You know, I think Vice President Pence was absolutely correct. And you don't even have to do more than just read the words of the Constitution to see that. The vice president's role is solely that he opens the votes in the presence of uh, the House uh, and the Senate. doesn't even say he counts them. The notion that he exercises some kind of supervisory authority to decide whether he thinks the elections were properly administered and so forth is a uh, it, it's not there. That's a complete fiction. Christina, your thoughts about the role of the vice president and is his role purely ministerial or does he in fact have a substantive role to play? I, I couldn't have put it better than Michael. I don't think there's any ambiguity about this. There is no role for him to play in judging the votes. Uh, we've talked already about the possibility and it's happened before in our history of uh, different slates of electors coming to Congress, but even then, it's not for the vice president to to choose which one is going to be recognized. That would effectively give the vice president the power to decide the presidency. And in our day and age, when he runs on a ticket with the president, that would be um, a, a bizarre way of approaching or creating a process. And and so it it is a ministerial position, and, and it, it long has been. Well, let's talk now about the role of the electoral college and the electoral count act more generally. Michael, Team Conservative, of which you were a distinguished part in the National Constitution Center's drafting project, proposed replacing the Electoral College with a national popular vote. Do you personally think that's an urgent national priority? To what degree did the fact that several recent candidates have lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College contribute to the current election vexations? And are there any reforms of the Electoral Count Act that you think would clarify things? I do favor uh, a national popular election and, and, by the way, with ranked choice voting to eliminate the problem of runoffs. But you leave out an important part of this, is, which is candidate selection, which I think is actually a worse part of our system by far uh, than the Electoral College. Our, our current system of having primaries in which people you know, vote kind of frivolously for uh, uh, for to, to make send a message rather than actually choosing people who would be responsible uh, stewards of the office. I, I think it's a really terrible way to choose presidents. And our proposal uh, was to use these state legislatures as effectively nominating conventions and that they would choose the candidates. It's an elaborate proposal, and I won't explain it here, but the purpose is to try to find candidates, two candidates usually, who would have the kind of experience and temperament to run the country in the interest of the country rather than people who can just raise money and 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 make a big splash. But I don't actually think the Electoral College is to blame uh, for our current problems. I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, we would never, if we were a country, create an Electoral College today. It's just something we are stuck with for historical reasons. It did have does have some advantages, though, in that it does require candidates to uh, travel around uh, the country and not just focus upon 
places with the high populations, mostly the coasts, uh, but to try to get votes all over. And also, I think the decentralization of election machinery that the Electoral College brings about turns out to have a great advantages. If everything were centralized in Washington, it would be under the control of somebody. Um, and I don't trust anybody. Uh, so the decentralization has been good. It is, I thought, that it's so heartening to see the way election officials and judges, both state judges and federal judges, taking their oaths of office seriously and administering this election without uh, seeming favoritism to their own party. Uh, it's really, and, 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 and to have so many of them involved uh, means that it's, it would be very difficult for a conspiracy at the center to be able to uh, distort the decisions of the American people. Christina, your thoughts about any reforms that you would propose to the Electoral College, to candidate selection, or to the Electoral Count Act, or other electoral reforms in the wake of the events of January 6th? Like many people, I I would love it if we could get rid of the Electoral College. As Michael suggests, and he writes about this in his book, the Electoral College was a creation of the framers who neither wanted a president elected by Congress, they wanted some independence, nor did they want a president elected by the people whom they distrusted. But, but I think as a political culture, we've moved past their extreme distrust of the, the populace. We're much less elitist uh, as a country than, than they were in that sense. And uh, so I think popular election is really the only way that, that makes sense. And I, I, contrary to Michael, I do think that the Electoral College has contributed in, in some way to the distrust that has grown amongst people because it has exacerbated the sense among uh, Democrats in particular that we have a system that privileges minoritarian interests and that it's hard for uh, the majority of the population to actually have their will expressed. It worked out well this time. There was not uh, the the gap between the popular vote and the electoral college that we saw in 2016 or 2000. I do remember thinking before 2000 that the next time there was the discrepancy between the two, that that would be the end of the electoral college. But that's, of course, before I was in law school and understood it's not that simple <laughs> to get rid of the electoral college. But if there were a way to do that, I, I think that would dramatically improve our system and, and would encourage the kind of campaigning that, that Michael is expressing the value of, which is campaigning to all the people where California matters, where, where Texas matters, where New York matters in ways that large population centers don't, don't really seem to, at least in the, the way the calendar is set up. And, and yet I also think that Michael's suggestion of thinking of ways to reform our primary system, maybe by having ranked choice voting so you don't get extreme people uh, when you have a field of candidates full of lots of mainstreamers whose uh, votes are split and then you have the extreme person comes come through who appeals to the outer edges of, of the party. Those kinds of reforms, which I think are easier, would be easier uh, to realize than uh, an amendment to the Constitution are worth considering. And that that could have a demonstrable effect on the political culture that, that we've been discussing and in some sense lamenting the, um, the erosion of. 
Michael, let's talk about media filter bubbles and disinformation. A Fox News poll released in December found that 77% of those who cast ballots for President Trump said they thought the election had been stolen from him. Just 10% of Democrats agreed. What are your thoughts about the role of cable television and social media in spreading disinformation through filter bubbles and echo chambers? And what, if anything, can be done about it? I do think that our uh, media culture has been a major part of our problem. And it is splintered so that we now have lots more different uh, channels, and that seems good. And it it looked more democratic uh, at the beginning so that we don't just have three networks that basically were all the same and and major newspapers that were all pretty much the same. Uh, But the effect of this has been that that there are very few, maybe zero institutions left that command trust among the entire uh, population. Now, uh, the mainstream press, I have to say, has not covered itself with glory. I think it has been too inclined to ally itself with the Democratic Party and and then to blame the people for starting to distrust them. Uh, I, I dearly wish that newspapers and other news organs would do a little bit of maybe just reporting the news and not just not constantly telling us what we're supposed to conclude from that and you know and and making themselves into partisan uh, organs um, the the fact that people don't know where to go even I I you know, things happen and I'll say to myself, well, I wonder if, if that's true, that's really important, but I think I'll wait a couple of days and find out if it's actually true or not. And this is a very serious problem for a democracy. Christina, your thoughts about the role of media companies, including social media companies, in spreading disinformation and what, if anything, can be done about it? I do think that splintering is a serious problem, even though uh, the creation of more outlets has, in a sense, democratized both the production of and the access to information. But it's a little bit like uh, teaching a class where students don't read the same thing. Uh, If they read two different essays, you can't have a common discussion. And the fact that uh, we have different groups of people who affiliate with different political parties reading entirely different sources to understand what's going on in the world means that we don't share a reality that allows us to put pressure on you know our lawmakers or the people who represent us uh, to resolve the same reality. Um, and that contributes to the polarization in Congress to to some extent. I, I also think that and and this is this is a little bit of an armchair uh, diagnosis of the media environment about which I'm not especially expert, but that the mainstream media, whatever you define that as, but the major networks and, and even the mainstream newspapers are an entertainment business uh, and often much more interested in things that people will click on and incendiary things or sensational things that don't actually promote 
debate or more importantly, in some sense, uh, knowledge production and knowledge dissemination. Uh, very few people will, relative to the size of the whole population, sit down and listen to a conversation like this, as opposed to reading uh, you know, a salacious headline about how um, the, uh, you know, President Trump is destroying the country full stop. Uh, so I think that is also a problem that I have no sense of how to solve because it is related to market incentives and uh, what people prefer to read and see, which is things that will entertain them as opposed to things that necessarily inform. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this important and illuminating discussion. Michael, the first one is to you. How well has the Constitution worked in carrying America through the challenging events that followed January 6, 2021. And if you had to propose a single reform for strengthening one of the guardrails of the Constitution to protect the rule of law, what would it be? So I think the conduct of the election was a real triumph for the system under very difficult circumstances driven by COVID that led to unprecedented numbers of mail-in ballots, which do present uh, risks that in-person voting uh, uh, doesn't present. But I think we came through this remarkably well. And I, I say that not because there might not be fraud. I was actually paying attention to the evidence and and, and struck by how, how little evidence there was. I'm, I think it's actually good that some of Mr. Trump's lawyers were able to expose how little support there was for their case in court so that Americans who are actually paying attention should have come from out of those proceedings reassured that the election was um, really quite almost unblemished. I, I think Attorney General Barr probably put it best when he said that you know any level of fraud did not rise to affecting the election results. But it sure is hard to see last Wednesday's results as any um, uh, as the system working. It was a horrible uh, affair uh, with members of Congress's lives apparently at risk of a police officer being killed with you know, members of Congress cowering in fear for their lives from a mob uh one thing we certainly need to do is to improve security procedures for Congress and to be alert for this sort of thing uh, in the future. But the real problem, the underlying problem here is cultural, and that is that you know our, our country really needs to draw back from the hyper-partisanship in which people hate each other more than they love the country. And that is uh, not something that there are going to be any reforms that can accomplish. I I just hope that those horrible events last uh, Wednesday might instill in people a desire to uh, bring the country together again. Christina, the last word is to you. Has the Constitution worked in the wake of the historic events of January 6th? And if you had to propose a single reform for strengthening one of the guardrails to protect the rule of law, what would it be? So I think the electoral system, as Michael suggested, performed quite well, and that the secretaries of state throughout the country, poll workers, um, voters, all collaborated in a way that 
produced an election that we, I, I believe, should be reasonably proud of. I think the point that I've heard a lot in analysis of the election that I think is a way of making sense of all of the dire scenarios that were played out in advance was that that is persuasive to me is that had the election been much closer than it was, had it come down to a single state an electoral college, for example, the kinds of things that the president and some of his supporters tried to do might have had more traction and could have led to much more serious conflict and much more reasonable doubt on you know both sides of the election contest about the outcome. And for that reason, I think that an important it's not a single reform, but but set of reforms is um, to to follow through with the kinds of reforms to the systems of elections, to the way votes are cast, to the way they are counted, to the, the way people are permitted to to register. Um, all of those things are are things that deserve attention uh, to ensure that the systems work even better than than they do. Um, but then to the bigger question. I don't know if this is the bigger question, but maybe it's the more immediate question about what to do about uh, what happened on January 6th. Uh, and, and I think um, this is a different way of putting Michael's point that there's no reform to the Constitution uh, short of switching over to a parliamentary system <laughs> that would prevent what happened if you have a person with the character of our current president uh, who is running in the election and you have more fundamentally, a, a political culture that is as sick and divided as ours. And it's a combination of the polarization, the disinformation climate, the proliferation of conspiracy theories, the absence of overlapping consensus, which seems to be growing larger and larger, or the overlapping consensus vanishingly small as the years go by, that is our, our real fundamental problem, the inability to see commonality in one another. And the fact that um, people have alternate realities that they truly believe in, evidence notwithstanding, those are problems that are not going to be fixed by constitutional reform. Uh, but they are related to the kind of political leadership that we have and the way that people talk about politics in, in our society. And, and those, are, uh, those are things that um, need rejuvenation. Thank you so much, Michael McConnell and Christina Rodriguez, for modeling civil and illuminating constitutional discourse about the remarkable moment in constitutional history that we're all living and learning about together. Michael, Christina, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Mac Taylor and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who's eager for constitutional enlightenment and who is not during these remarkable days. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, commitment, passion, love of education of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. 
You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.